life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, Welcome aboard. Now uh, let's get going with a couple of questions. Why is sweat like a pig a misnomer? And the next question, with what was Georgi Markov poisoned? So those are your questions that we'll start the show with today. Why is sweat like a pig a misnomer? And with what was Georgi Markov poisoned? I'm Joe Schwartz. I uh, teach chemistry and I also direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where we have a mandate to separate sense from nonsense, myth from fact. Tremendously challenging these days, as I keep telling you. Uh, we also like to keep you up to date with what is happening in the world of science and hopefully intrigue you with some interesting but unusual stories. Well, one that has just uh, sort of come to my mind, although I, I suspect it really isn't all that unusual, it's, it's about Coca-Cola. And uh, uh, for some reason, I, I, I just thought of the fact um, that uh, when I first uh, went back to Hungary, as, as you probably know, because I've said this many times, we came to Canada in 1956, but uh, I made my first trip back uh, in uh, 1967. And uh, at that time, uh, I was invited for supper at my uh, relative's uh, house. And they served us a, a great supper because uh, Hungarians are great cooks, but also Coca-Cola. <laughs> and there were four of us, and they had one bottle of six-ounce Coca-Cola because it was such a prized possession at that time. Uh, this was not easily available in the Iron Curtain countries uh, back then and was a prized possession. And that... Uh, Little six ounce bottle of uh, Coca Cola was distributed among four people almost drop by drop. And of course, to me, that seemed humorous because, uh, of course, at that time, Coca Cola was already a very, very popular, readily available product here. But uh, history of Coca Cola is, is fascinating. It was originally advertised as the ideal brain tonic that relieves mental and physical exhaustion. Uh, without a doubt, Coca-Cola is the most recognized logo in the world. And uh, it was introduced as a health tonic by Atlanta pharmacist John Pemberton. That was way back in 1886. It was flavored with extracts of the South American coca leaf and the African cola nut. And originally, it also contained alcohol. Soon after Pemberton introduced his invention, the country where he lived, uh, the county in, in Georgia, the state in the U.S., banned alcohol, and that prompted him to remove it from the beverage. He added sugar along with a mix of fruit juices and plant extracts, keeping the exact composition a secret, and uh, that, of course, is uh, still the case today. Uh, he wanted to keep it secret from competitors. Coca-Cola became a temperance drink 
with uh, you know the uh, the formula being kept in that vault in uh, in Atlanta so we are told anyway in 1888 Pemberton sold the company to another Atlanta pharmacist by the name of Asa Candler who had to deal with a tax from some consumers who claimed that the cocaine in the beverage would lead to addiction I want to call attention to a very vicious and pernicious thing which is going on in this and almost every other town, a man wrote to an Atlanta newspaper referring to the sales of Coca-Cola. Originally, there really were traces of cocaine, although essentially insignificant since a gallon of syrup that made 128 glasses contained half an ounce of coca leaves. Today, coca leaves are still used for flavor, but only after the cocaine has been extracted. The Stepan Company in New Jersey is the only one allowed to import and process coca leaves. Uh, Some of the extracted cocaine is used as an anesthetic for eye and nasal surgery, but most of it is destroyed. So there are no worries about cocaine in coke. Of course, there's plenty of sugar in there to be concerned about. I mean, even that small bottle that I talked about that I... that. I was served a, a part of back then in 1967 in Hungary contained uh, about six teaspoons of, of sugar. That's the real concern about uh, Coca-Cola. Of course, it's also available in sugar-free versions uh, that use artificial sweeteners, but there are some issues that crop up with those as well. I mean, I don't think that there are any significant um, you know, health issues, uh, but uh, it does uh, give people a taste for sweets so that you're more likely to consume other sweet products. There also have been some studies, which we've uh, referred to before, uh, that have shown that certain artificial sweeteners will change the relative amounts of the bacteria in our colon. And these days, there's a lot of attention being paid to the colon uh, the so-called microbiota, the, the uh, blend of bacteria that inhabit our digestive tract. And there are lots of bacteria there. There are trillions of bacteria. As I've told you before, there are more bacterial cells in the human body than there are human cells. And uh, there certainly are bacteria in our gut that are referred to as good bacteria, which crank out substances that are beneficial to the body, such as as butyric acid. Uh, That's important for the health of the lining of the intestine, also contributes to um, uh, better functioning of the immune system. So the the exact composition of the gut bacteria is important, although there are a lot of mysteries there that still have to be solved about which are the best bacteria and which are the most troublesome. But in any case, uh, some artificial sweeteners may upset the balance of of bacteria. Okay, Uh, I think that we actually have uh, Stephen on the line who's got a question. Stephen. Yes, hi, Dr. Joe. Hi. Hi, Dr. Joe. My girlfriend and I are just back from Jamaica. We walk in the sand along the beach or on the trail, and tiny uh, ants, go for her feet like crazy. You can see them turn for her. And I can put my foot right down on them, and they don't bother me at all. Uh, Why could that be? And is there any kind of a repellent uh, that she could use for that? That's an interesting interesting observation. Uh, I'm not sure 
that I, I can have already answer for that. I mean, certainly we know that mosquitoes are more attracted to some people than others, and that has been attributed to um, carbon dioxide. Some people will um, exude more than, than others. Uh, it is also possible that there are certain components in sweat that are attractive to the bugs. And of course, people's sweat is, is quite individual. It's, uh, it's also possible that uh, some people will secrete more uh, sugar uh, in their sweat. They can certainly secrete more sugar in the urine. I mean, that used to be a classic test for diabetes. The ancient Greeks knew about that. If they took a sample of, of, of urine and um, they exposed it to ants, and if the ants would scurry towards the urine, they knew that there was some medical problem. They didn't really understand this was diabetes. Today we know because the urine can have a high load of sugar. So I, 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 I don't know. I, you know. I don't have a concrete answer for that, but, but it's not all that surprising that some people's sweat or you know, secretions should be more attractive to, uh, to ants. So I, it's a, just an interesting observation. I wish I could give you a better uh, answer to that. Uh, in terms of, of preventing it, I bet wearing of shoes would do that. <laughs> okay? Sure. All right. Uh, so hopefully we've gone some way towards answering that uh, uh, that question. Uh, someone has texted in that the acid of Coke is not good for bones, osteoporosis issues. This, this is uh, – actually, there is something to that. That is the phosphoric acid that is present in, in Coke, which is responsible for uh, some of the flavor. And indeed, if it is consumed in significant amounts, yes, uh, that would have an effect on uh, formation of, of, of bone. Uh, I, I certainly, as, as you probably know, am not in favor of soft drinks. I've always said that... Uh, if there were one dietary change that we could make in North America that would have the biggest impact on the health of the public, it would be to uh, remove soft drinks from the marketplace. So I'm not in favor of them. On the other hand, of course, uh, it's as with so many things, it's always a question of an amount. I mean, if you originally enjoy a, a glass of uh, soft drink, Coke or whatever else it may be with a slice of pizza, uh, that is not going to to do you any great harm, but this is not something that should be consumed uh, on a regular basis. All right, uh, I did also have an answer to my question about pigs, and uh, Betty uh, tells us uh, indeed the correct answer that the reason that sweat like a pig is a misnomer is because pigs uh, do not have sweat glands. Pigs do not wallow in mud because they like dirt. Uh, they have no perspiration apparatus, and that's the only way that they can lower their temperature. So that is uh, exactly correct. Pigs uh, do, not, uh, uh, do not sweat. Uh, pigs, of course, are, are very interesting uh, animals, and uh, the the industry is a very large industry because pork is a very popular uh, meat. I'll tell you a little bit more uh, about the business of feeding pigs, but first, uh, let's check what's happening out there in the world of traffic. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. 
Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Artificial barley malt, glycerin, and aspartate, folic acid. That tastes great. Monosodium glutamate, dehydrated calcium, soybean oil, Center, all of that. Okay, we are back. And since we did have an answer to one of my questions about sweating pigs, let me replace it with another question. What is the origin of the clever hands effect? What is the origin of the clever hands effect? If you know the answer to my questions, or if you want to give us a call and pose a scientific question, 514-790-0800. You can also text to 514-800. I think we have Peter on the line. Peter. Good afternoon. Hi. I've got, uh, thanks to Google, I've got the answer to your second quiz question on uh, what killed uh, Georgi uh, Markov. Go ahead. Uh, it's, I, don't, I don't know how to pronounce the chemical, but it's either ricin or ricin. Right. It's actually ricin. Yeah. So, but what's the story? Oh, I don't know. I don't know the story. <laughs> All right. So sit back and I'll tell you the story. Uh, Georgi Markov was a Bulgarian political refugee who escaped to London, and he was active against the Bulgarian government. I mean, this, of course, was still during the days of the Iron Curtain. And one day, a mysterious stranger jabbed him in the leg with a sharpened umbrella tip. Markov died soon after this incident, and an autopsy revealed a minute hollow pellet in the wound which contained the poison, and that's ricin, which is a, a toxic uh, protein, and it... Uh, inhibit uh, the synthesis of important other proteins in the body. It's extracted from the castor bean. Uh, it isn't present in castor oil, uh, but it remains in the cake after the oil has been extracted. And um, that is uh, the source of, of ricin. In, in Mexico, castor beans are used to make jewelry for tourists. And there can be serious reactions from eating a bean or crushing one in your hand and putting the hand in your mouth. But that's a rare occurrence. Uh, but in the case of uh, Georgi Markov, it was <clears throat> deliberate poisoning by the Bulgarian secret police uh, in, in collusion with the KGB, who, of course, are experts at, at poisoning. So, yes, that's the story of the uh, poisoned umbrella and uh, Georgi Markov. All right. So we have that question uh, answered as well. Uh, so let me replace that one also. Uh, the world's most expensive toilet paper, priced at $1.5 million a roll, was created in 2013 as a promotion in Australia. What was it made of? If you know the answer, 514-790-0800, text to 514-800. But also, I did promise to tell you about feeding pigs which is not a simple business. Not because they are finicky eaters, and they're not. In fact, pigs will eat most anything. Cost and nutrition are the issues. Soy, corn, oats, barley, peas, lentils, and canola are the common feed components. But these differ in price and protein content, so they have to be judiciously selected and blended. Pigs, like humans, need amino acids to synthesize muscle tissues and enzymes. 
Uh, these come from breaking down dietary protein into its component amino acids. But if the amino acid ratios are not exactly what the pigs need, some of the excess will be excreted in their fecal matter. That can be a problem because amino acids can be a source of nitrate as well as ammonia, which are environmental concerns. An effective approach is to add amino acids such as lysine or methionine to the feed in appropriate amounts, but the viability of this depends on relative costs. One of the greatest concerns of a pig facility is the copious amounts of manure the animals produce, up to eight pounds a day. The stuff falls through the slats in the floor of the piggery and collects in tanks underneath. Periodically, the farmer pulls a plug allowing the liquid manure to flow into outdoor lagoons. This is a potentially dangerous process because anaerobic fermentation produces toxic hydrogen sulfide gas, which is liberated into the air when manure is agitated. The lagoons are designed by engineers and use various high-tech liners to ensure no leakage. No manure is dumped into lakes or rivers, and groundwater uh, around lagoons is constantly tested. Well, pig manure makes for a highly effective organic fertilizer, which farmers pump into the soil to raise crops. Pig sludge can even be dried, mixed with waste paper and sawdust, and burned for energy production. Waste management systems can be designed to capture the methane gas produced by decomposing manure, which in turn can be burned to produce electricity. So no doubt about it, though, the smell of manure is a huge problem. Trees planted around manure lagoons and pit additives, such as certain enzymes and copper compounds that break down odiferous components, these can help, as well as the use of zeolites. That's a special form of volcanic rock that absorbs smells. Odors are not only a problem for the neighbors, they are worrisome for the farmer as well. A buildup of ammonia in a barn is dangerous to the health of piglets, and there is concern about some of the so-called endotoxins produced by bacteria that are housed by pigs. Inhaling these can cause severe respiratory problems. Antibiotics in the feed control bacteria uh, then raise the issue of developing resistance to those drugs. Uh, to prevent uh, this, there are stringent laws enforced, and animals, even with a trace of antibiotic residue, cannot be marketed. Uh, farmers are subjected to, to crippling fines if they do not adhere to these uh, regulations. Uh, pig farming, as uh, you can understand from just this cursory uh, review, it's, it's not an easy business. In general, farmers do not have an easy business. Uh, I think uh, anyone who has not spent um, some time on a farm uh, doesn't realize really what is involved in raising our food. Uh, we all complain about the high price of food, especially these days. Uh, but, uh, you know, when you get some knowledge of what is involved in delivering that food to the supermarket, uh, I think you develop some appreciation uh, for it. Uh, many years ago, uh, when I was uh, doing a bunch of stuff on the Discovery Channel, uh, we did a whole series of programs on on food, and I think it was pretty good uh, series. I mean, that I know goes back about twenty years, so it, you know, technically, it was not quite as sophisticated as some of the shows which are are produced today. 
but um, I think it was pretty good. And we went around the country and we uh, reported on on uh, the way that uh, food is, is produced. Uh, we went to Alberta, for example, uh, to look at corn growing. Uh, we went to uh, Michigan, uh, to take a look at cereal uh, production, went to Battle Creek, uh, visited the Kellogg's Empire, <clears throat> also had a chance there to visit the old Kellogg Sanitarium, which of course is of great historical uh, importance. That's where John Harvey Kellogg and his brother Will developed cereals, which originally were a health food. Uh, John Harvey Kellogg was a dedicated uh, vegetarian and he developed uh, various kind of, of plant foods as alternatives to, to meat. He thought that eating meat was sexually inflammatory and that his cereals would curb such uh, desires. Uh, we went to Chicago to do a, a show on, on pizzas. Chicago supposedly is, you know, well, it is the home of deep dish pizza. So we went, uh, you know, we had a look at uh, how pizza is made and where all the components uh, uh, come from. Uh, we visited uh, a meat processing plant in in uh, Calgary. And uh, so I, you know, during that series, I had a chance to really take a look at our, our food supply. And I can tell you that since then, I, I really have a, a, a totally different appreciation for uh, farmers and for the whole food production process. It's very easy to, to you know, complain about uh, uh, the high price of food these days and, and how you know, it's all processed, not like in good old days. But I think our food supply today is better than it has ever been if you know how to make the right choices. And our farmers deserve a great deal of credit for being able to produce uh, 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 such a, a diversity of foods that, uh, you know, which we can uh, avail ourselves. Uh, you're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Let's see what's happening in the world. We will check CTV News. Be right back. So for a while we conducted experiments. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, we still have a question hanging out there about what is the clever hands effect. Uh, if you know the answer to that, give us a call, 514-790-0800. You can also text to 514-800. I want to tell you a little bit about paprika. Uh, it probably is my favorite spice. Uh, and uh, as you probably know, it is uh, Hungary's signature spice. Uh, it's, uh, it's made by grinding up uh, red peppers. And of course, there are many varieties of paprika, hot and, and mild and slightly different flavors, depending on exactly which peppers are, are, are used. Uh, but uh, the reason I like to talk about it is because of the role that paprika has played in scientific history, in the discovery of vitamin C, which was made by Dr. Albert uh, St. Giorgi. And uh, I tell you that, uh, you know, I, I think about this every time that I cook with paprika. 
I, I don't cook all that often, to tell you the truth. My repertoire is somewhat limited, although I think that whatever I make, I, I make pretty well. Uh, and it uh, almost always is uh, a dish that starts with sauteing onions and adding paprika. Uh, for example, chicken paprikash. Of course, a classic uh, Hungarian meal. And um, I make it, uh, so it takes some oil. I mean, traditionally, of course, lard was used in Hungary, but I would not do that now. I, I use um, uh, oil, olive oil, uh, any kind of oil, really doesn't matter. Saute the onions, and then add a little bit of paprika. Uh, the hot oil will extract a lot of the flavor of the paprika, but at this point, you want to be very careful not to burn the paprika. It, it very easily goes black, and then, then it becomes a bitter tasting. You absolutely don't want that. So I just uh, add a little bit of paprika to the oil just to extract a little flavor, and maybe not, not for more than a minute. Uh, then you add the chicken. I, I use thighs and legs and just turn them in the hot oil. Uh, they will get coated, of course, with the oil and the paprika. They turn a little bit uh, brown, and then add uh, green peppers, add tomatoes, add garlic, uh, and uh, slowly simmer. Uh, chicken softens pretty quickly, so simmer for about uh, an hour. And the, uh, the tomatoes and the peppers will release enough juice so that it should all be covered. Uh, if it tends to evaporate too quickly, you add a little bit of water to make sure that it doesn't dry out and that you get a nice uh, sauce uh, in there. And then uh, when I, it is about, uh, you know, three quarters of the way cooked, that's when I eat, add um, most of the uh, paprika that I use. A couple of, well, of course, it depends on how much chicken you're cooking. Uh, but uh, for... Uh, uh, maybe the, the four or five pieces that I use, you add a couple of heaping spoonfuls of, of, of paprika. Uh, that will, at this point, make it nice and red and, of course, bring out the flavor. Uh, you add a little bit of salt, a little bit of pepper, and in an hour, you have a, a super dish. And if you really want to, to dress it up at the very end, you, you can add um, a bit of sour cream. And that really brings out uh, the flavor. Now, I think of that, that uh, you know, the story about vitamin C all the time when, uh, when I make my chicken dish. And it's a remarkable story. It's a story that begins at the end, literally. And the end we're talking about is the end of the digestive tract, the anus. In 1911, young Albert Sengerji, entered medical school in Budapest, where his uncle, uh, Mihai Lenhosek, happened to be a professor of anatomy. Albert asked to work in his lab, to which the uncle agreed with the proviso that he studied the lining of the anus and the rectum. Apparently, the prof suffered from hemorrhoids and hoped to profit from his nephew's research. There were no spectacular findings, but there was enough science to allow young Albert to publish a paper in 1913. That was the first of over 300 scientific publications he would produce in his lifetime. Unfortunately, his medical studies were inter interrupted by the First World War. He was conscripted to serve as a medic. He was anti-war, 
and he wanted to get out of there. He resorted to shooting himself with his pistol in the upper arm, claiming to have been hit by enemy fire. His knowledge of anatomy came in handy as the wound was just serious enough for him to be sent back to Budapest, where he then completed his medical degree. On graduation, he focused on a career in research, ending up at the University of Groningen in Netherlands. And it was here that Dr. Sengerji became interested in Addison's disease, which is a disease of the adrenal glands, named after Thomas Edison, who first described it in 1855. And uh, this is when the outer layer of the adrenals, the cortex, uh, fails to produce the hormones cortisol and aldosterone. And one of the side effects uh, of that lack of production is that the uh, skin tends to take on a brown discoloration. And it was this darkening that interested Sanjirdi, since it resembled the darkening of some vegetables, such as the potato, which when it is exposed to oxygen in the air. And this led to his studying extracts of the adrenal glands, but he could find no connection between the darkening of potatoes and darkening of the skin. But it did raise another question in his mind. How come that some plants darkened while others, like turnips, onions, cabbage, oranges, and lemons, did not? Was there some reducing factor these contained that reduced the rate of reaction with oxygen? He soon determined that the juice squeezed from these plants would stop browning in potatoes, and he got really excited when adrenal gland extracts accomplished the same thing. Before long, Sanjurdi managed to isolate from adrenals, as well as from some plants, a white crystalline substance. It had the formula C6H806, but they didn't know its molecular structure. This stuff prevented browning. And uh, it was difficult to extract it from plants, but you could extract it from adrenal glands. And uh, he eventually extracted 25 grams from cow adrenals that he obtained from slaughterhouses. He called this hexuronic acid, from the Greek hex for six, since it contained six carbon atoms. And then came a pivotal moment. St. George, of course, knew that back in 1757, Scottish physician James Lind had carried out a classic experiment demonstrating that consuming citrus fruits prevented scurvy. That was a scourge of sailors who on long voyages ate basically salted meat and biscuits, no fruits or vegetables. He also knew that in 1907, Axel Holst and Theodore Froelich had published a paper describing their studies on nutritional deficiencies in which guinea pigs fed a diet that contained only grains developed symptoms of scurvy. And these were reversed when they were given fresh cabbage or lemon juice. Then in 1912, Casimir Funk had introduced the concept of substances essential for life that had to be acquired from food because they could not be produced by the body. These were called vitamins. And the yet unidentified substance in cabbage and citrus juice that prevented scurvy was then termed vitamin C. But it was elusive. Now, St. Giorgi came to suspect that his hexuronic acid was this elusive vitamin C. But how do you prove this? Well, Holst and Froelich had been lucky to select the guinea pig as their model, since it is one of the few mammals that cannot make its own vitamin C. And now St. Giorgi, with colleague Joseph Sverbili, 
put guinea pigs on a scurvy-inducing diet and showed that the disease could be prevented by giving the animals hexaronic acid. Indeed, hexaronic acid was vitamin C. But determination of its molecular structure required large amounts, and the guinea pig experiment has used up their small supply. And then came what I think was an absolutely fascinating discovery, which is the reason that I'm telling you this story in the first place. But you will have to wait a few minutes to find out the ending, because first we're going to check for traffic. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Right, back to my paprika story. As I was telling you, the big problem was finding enough uh, of the substance that came to be called vitamin C, finding enough of it to determine its molecular structure, and hopefully then to synthesize it and have enough to use in treatment as needed. Well, it was at this point that St. Georgi, now professor at the University of Szeged in Hungary, was served a side dish of red peppers by his wife for supper. And it was at that moment that it suddenly occurred to him that here was one fruit that he had never tested for its content of what he now referred to as vitamin C. And yes, peppers are fruits, because the definition of a fruit is um, a plant product that contains a seed and which grows from a flower. So peppers, like tomatoes, are indeed fruits. Anyway, by his own account, uh, his thought triggered a quick trip to the lab and the discovery that the peppers and the paprika made from them were extremely rich in hexuronic acid, which he now was calling vitamin C. Within a short time, he had isolated half a kilo of the substance, a staggering amount at the time, some of which he sent to British chemist Walter Hayworth who then determined the compound's molecular structure and ended up sharing the Nobel Prize with San Giorgi in 1937. They also came up with the name ascorbic acid, and that derived from the letter A, from, in, uh, in Latin, and uh, scorbutus, which is the technical name for scurvy. So now perhaps you can relate to the story why uh, this whole account that I just told you comes to my mind whenever I add my segadi paprika, which I think is the best in the world, to my chicken paprikash. And, uh, but remember, if you're going to make it, be careful when you're sauteing the paprika and the oil. If you burn it, it will go dark and will get bitter. So that's why you add most of it near the end of, of cooking. Anyway, I, I, uh, have to end this with uh, uh, a, a quotation that Dr. Sanjurji was very, very fond of. It isn't quite clear where it originates. Uh, it has been a tribute to a lot of people. 
Discovering is what everyone else has seen and thinking what nobody else has thought. Yeah, like seeing red peppers on your plate and thinking, ah, vitamin C, like Sanjurji thought. So that's the story. Um, there are other interesting aspects of, of his history. As I told you, uh, Sanjurji was a pacifist. And he was one of the leaders of the Budapest anti-fascist movement when the Germans uh, came in. And uh, Hitler personally issued the warrant for his arrest because he was so active. Uh, but uh, eventually, due to his connection with the Swedish embassy, uh, he managed to to flee. And uh, uh, eventually, he spent a lot of time in the United States. In fact, he ended his life in the United States. Uh, but um, he was uh, a scientist who had uh, made Hitler very angry. Uh, I think we have Jean-Pierre on the line. Jean-Pierre. Hello. Hi. Hello, uh, Hans. Uh, you want me to give my interpretation? Of... Sure. Okay. Clever Hans was a horse that was reputed to know how to count. Mm-hmm. And uh, his, his uh, owner displayed the horse uh, for uh, fairies, I guess. And uh, he, if you ask a, a question that had a, a mathematical uh, answer, like a, a number, Clever Hands could give you the answer by uh, now stomping its foot on the, on the ground. Yes, that, okay. that, is, uh, that is true. And what is the Clever Hands effect? Well, it's the fact that the, the horse could uh, guess the emotions of the of his owner, and when the, the answer was, let's say, given an answer by his foot, when the answer was reached, uh, the the owner's uh, expression told the horse to stop counting. Yeah, that 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 is basically right. Basically right. The clever hands effect occurs when an experimenter influences behaviors with subtle clues. It, uh, usually unintentionally. So Clever Hands was a horse exhibited in the late 19th century, early 20th century, for his supposed ability to do math and read and understand colors. And, and uh, it was quite remarkable because, um, uh, you know, a crowd would gather and the question would be asked, you know, uh, add up two numbers, and the horse would get it right uh, repeatedly. And uh, there was a committee struck to try to investigate this, to you know, to see what really was was going on. And they came up with the expl- explanation that the questioner was giving subtle clues to the horse. Of course, this doesn't make it any less remarkable. Uh, it's uh, you know <laughs> pretty interesting that no matter how the horse was able to uh, derive the answers, it was able to give the the correct answer. So, yes, thank you. That is indeed the clever Hans effect. It also brings up uh, memories of the classic TV show, Mr. Ed. Uh, that was a pretty neat, uh, pretty neat show. It was all about a talking, uh, talking horse. And I, I don't know how they did that, uh, made the lips move, but uh, they did. You know, there there are not many the many products that uh, <clears throat> come up to snuff in terms of the hype of advertising, but uh, <laughs> I must say that the uh, the product that originally came out as as magic eraser uh, is one of those. 
Uh, it cleans dirt and grime, uh, you know, in, in a very effective way. It, it looks like a little sponge, like a white sponge. And, um, you know, I have a longstanding scientific interest in materials in the wrong place, which is exactly what dirt is. Mustard on the hot dog is fine. Mustard on your tie is dirt. And getting rid of dirt means dissolving it in an appropriate solvent, reacting it with chemicals that destroy it, or physically removing it by abrasion. Over the years, I've tried numerous products which have claimed to solve our dirt woes. And although there certainly are some effective ones out there, very few live up to their advertising hype. So, you know, I, I was somewhat skeptical when this magic eraser first came out. But that skepticism evaporated because the product really did deliver the goods. You moisten this thing um, and uh, with a gentle wipe, crayon and scuff marks on walls disappear, tiles come clean, smudges on kitchen counters and cabinets vanish as if by magic. So how does it work? Uh, kitchen counters and cabinets is a good place to begin our story because often they are made of the same stuff as the magic eraser. Melamine, resin, is what we're talking about. This, in turn, was the offspring of the first ever completely synthetic plastic, Bakelite. Uh, Leo Blaken produced that in 1906. It was excellent material, but colors were limited to black and brown. And the search for a colorless resin that could be dyed uh, resulted in urea formaldehyde plastics, which in turn led to melamine formaldehyde resins, which could be produced in a wide range of colors and were resistant to heat, water, and detergents. By the mid-1930s, beautifully colored melamine dishes could be found on store shelves. The Queen Mary of England proudly used her plastic picnic set. Well, melamine is a hard plastic unless it's made into a foam. If sodium bicarbonate is added to the plastic raw material, it decomposes in the hot melt, releases carbon dioxide gas. As the melt cools, the bubbles of CO2 become trapped and a foam results. Melamine forms can be used for cushions, acoustic barriers, for stain removal, and of course, formulated into these little bars called magic eraser. And they will really remove some stains as if by magic. Well, that is it. We've run out of time today, but we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Josh Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>